Hello and welcome to episode 6 of Juxtapod, the official podcast of the Juxtaposition Global Health Magazine. My name is Robin, and today I hosted prominent bioethicist Dr. Maxwell Smith from Western University, where we discussed COVID-19, global health equity, and more. I hope you enjoy this episode. Good morning, everyone. Today, I'm so pleased to be joined by Dr. Maxwell Smith. He's a bioethicist and assistant professor at Western University and the University of Toronto, and an ethics advisory group member at the World Health Organization. Thank you very much for coming on to our podcast today, Dr. Smith. Pleasure. I've briefly introduced you here, but your career and research is quite impressive. Could you please tell us more about yourself and the road to becoming a bioethicist? Yeah, so maybe that'll take the, the full time that we have because it's a long story. Um, you know, but in brief, I, I started as an undergraduate student at the University of Toronto in philosophy. Uh, philosophical questions were very interesting to me. And it wasn't really until my final year of my undergraduate program that I sort of thought about how do you take a philosophy degree and get a job? Right? So it was sort of late in the game in my fourth year thinking, how do I, what do I do after this? And applied ethics was one of those areas where there's obviously lots of opportunities to be thinking about ethical questions uh, in, in moral philosophy, but actually applied to practical issues, whether it's in hospitals or for government or for intergovernmental organizations. So I ended up doing a master's in, in bioethics where I focused on uh, clinical ethics issues. Um, but because I was uh, located in Toronto, this was shortly after uh, the 2002-2003 SARS epidemic. And so a lot of the people focused on ethics in Toronto had shifted their focus to thinking about ethics and infectious diseases. And so I got, uh, just by virtue of working with, with people in Toronto around those issues, I got interested in issues in public health and global health. So I ended up doing a PhD in public health at the University of Toronto, where I tried to marry my interests of public health and ethics. And so that's where I ended up uh, now being a researcher in public health ethics and particularly looking at issues of infectious disease and ethics and questions of health equity and social justice. I read your paper, as I mentioned before, in the New England Journal of Medicine on the fair allocation of scarce medical resources in the time of COVID-19, which was published in May 2020. And at that time, we had a very scared and shaken world. No vaccinations, stress medical resources, and we were only using emergency approved drugs like remdesivir and hydroxychloroquine. And given that we are still in a pandemic with unpredictable variants on the rise, despite relative access to various kinds of vaccines, I really wanted to center our conversation today on vaccine equity. So could you explain to us what vaccine equity is exactly? Yeah, I mean, usually when we think about vaccine equity, we, we strictly think about the allocation of vaccines, right? And wanting to do so in a way that would be considered fair. And we can get into a conversation about what fairness would actually require, which is a, a really deep uh, and profound philosophical question. But maybe just to start, it's really important to think not just only about the allocation of vaccines, uh, not only domestically to different populations in Ontario or different populations in Canada, but globally thinking about how do you allocate those uh, to different countries around the world, given the different needs. But I think given the, the current state of affairs where we're seeing uh, profound global inequities in vaccine distribution, we should also be thinking about the other sorts of things that lead to vaccine inequity too. Um, in, in South Africa, where the Omicron variant was first identified by South African uh, scientists, 
Many are pointing to the fact that, you know, there, it wasn't necessarily that they had insufficient uh, vaccines um, that really caused that to occur, but actually it's the capacity, the infrastructure, health system infrastructure that needs to be in place to make sure that whatever vaccines we do get in, in different countries can be effectively distributed. And so we're actually getting vaccines into arms uh, that different countries have vaccine manufacturing capacity, right? So that we have um, uh, uh, waiving things like intellectual property rights and make, making sure we're uh, transferring technologies to low and middle income countries so that they can uh, actually uh, manufacture and distribute these vaccines effectively. So vaccine equity, you know, on the face of it looks like just getting vaccines into the right places around the world, but really it, it requires more effort, right? It requires a real meaningful engagement with different populations and making sure that yes, that these different populations get the vaccines, but they also have the opportunity to actually put those vaccines into arms. And the question of what is equitable uh, in that in that whole scheme of things is, is a, a deep philosophical question that we could spend a lot of time focusing on. Um, but one of the you know paradigm ways of thinking about this is that it 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 isn't necessarily the case that everyone has to be treated equally, right? That when you have a scarce resource you need to think about how you should allocate that resource so as to uh, achieve the kind of health goals that we want to achieve in an equitable way. So in this case, just like how we distributed the vaccines in Canada, um, we, we might want to think about sending those vaccines to the places where the burden is the highest, or where the risk of severe outcomes from COVID is the highest. And unfortunately, that's not what we're seeing uh, globally right now with vaccine distribution. One in four healthcare workers in Africa, for instance, have received a single dose of the vaccine. And healthcare workers are, are of course, one of the highest risk populations when it comes to, to COVID. So that's the kind of thing that we need to think about when we're thinking about vaccine equity, is making sure not only that everyone gets access to the vaccine, but they're actually prioritizing those that are at greatest risk right out, right out of the gate. Yeah, it's a very saddening thought that the unequal distribution of vaccinations can cause so much strife and deepen the inequalities and exaggerate the gap that already exists between rich and poor, reversing you know decades of um, long process of human development. So that being said, are the current measures we have in place for vaccine equity enough? Clearly it's not working if one in four healthcare workers in Africa aren't even vaccinated. Yeah, I would say it isn't, uh, it isn't enough. And, you know, you can look to the policy mechanisms that we have in place to try to affect change with respect to vaccine equity and say, look, we, we might just need technological solutions or changes in the technologies or policies we have in place uh, to, to hopefully produce more vaccine equity. But I would suggest that actually what we, what we need to look to is our fundamental moral commitments, uh, commitments to solidarity, commitments to global justice, those don't exist. And unless we actually appreciate that we need to ground our policies and thinking in those sort of ethical values, we're not going to correct for those inequities. So just as an example, if you think about high income countries and their relationship to low, low and middle income countries and the, the allocation of vaccines, I would argue that a lot of that relationship is based on a, a concept like charity. And I think we could think about it in terms of charity because in Canada, for instance, we were very uh, keen to vaccinate our entire population and then say we will ensure after that that we will get vaccines into arms in low and middle income countries, but we need to prioritize Canadians in that effort. That to me just uh, reeks of charity, right? It's something that it's good to do. Yes, we want to help other people, 
but we're not going to sacrifice any of our own sort of health or well-being uh, if, if, uh, if that would be the case in doing so. And so once we're uh, well protected, then we'll think about helping people in, in other parts of the world. Um, but the thing that really requires uh, or that will really create change is moving from this paradigm of charity and thinking about giving vaccines to other countries as a charitable effort to actually an obligation and an obligation of justice. And if we actually have an obligation to uh, avert suffering in low and middle income countries, just as we do in Canada, then we would think much differently about who should get vaccines and when they should get them. Um, and I think right now, uh, high income countries and really most of the world is operating under this idea that it would, you know, it would be good to give other people's vaccines, but there's no obligation to do so. And so we'll act charitably instead of uh, as a matter of justice. So I think we need that fundamental shift, something we haven't seen in global health in, in many respects for, for decades and decades. We really need to affect that sort of shift in our thinking if we want to make that kind of progress uh, globally. I remember reading your tweet that tweaking vaccines is a technical problem, but the underlying problem of vaccine inequity itself is actually a moral problem. So apart from this idea of treating low to middle income countries like charity, what sort of other moral problems have you seen arise in the pandemic, especially in regards to vaccine equity? Yeah, I think a lot of the time uh, it's you could actually try to diagnose a lot of the problems in the same way to to say that the problems that we're looking at tend to be construed as technical problems that merely require technical fixes. And I think this is kind of a problem of the, the films and TV that we watch. Uh, if you think of these apocalypse type movies or even films that focus on uh, contagious uh, infectious diseases, typically those end are resolved by some sort of technological innovation. You know, the scientists sort of win the day, they create the vaccine and boom, the pandemic is over. Right. So I think we're always holding out for that technological fix, unwilling to uh, address the moral failures that we have um, that are perpetuating these sorts of issues. So I, I kind of think you name it. Um, uh, most of the policy failures that we've seen in this pandemic, whether it's equitable distribution of resources, whether it's effectively using public health measures to curb the spread of disease. A lot of the time we're, we're, we're I think we have this kind of hope that there's going to be some technological fix and we actually don't individually need to change our behaviors and our moral outlook or disposition towards how we treat other people or how we ought to um, stand in regard to other people. But what's clearly, uh, I think, being, being shown to us over and over and over again is that those technological innovations like vaccines and therapeutics and diagnostics are absolutely necessary. We need them. But unless we also say, look, the way in which I interact with other people, either individually uh, in, in my own town, uh, locally, or across countries globally, that's the thing that really needs to change if we really want to, to have this uh, end the pandemic and see some progress here. So I think a lot of it comes down to this distinction between technical problems and technical fixes versus moral problems that require moral, uh, uh, a different framing of how we think about these moral issues. So what are your thoughts on Canada's current position in vaccine equity? And could you speak to maybe some advantages and disadvantages? Yeah, so when it comes to Canada, I mean, we've, I, there's been a couple of missteps, I think, in my view, in terms of how we've uh, approached global vaccine equity. I, I mean, one of the things was the, the World Health Organization, along with several other organizations, uh, developed something called uh, the ACT Accelerator, the Access to COVID Tools Accelerator. And this was a collaborative framework to bring together countries and different organizations 
to allocate uh, diagnostics, therapies, and, and vaccines uh, with, you know, in a way that's fair globally. And part of, one of the pillars of the ACT Accelerator, which uh, is, is uh, focused on the um, distribution of vaccines, is called COVAX. And Canada, as a high-income country, actually drew vaccines from COVAX. And COVAX was really meant to pool the resources from different organizations and countries and, and from pharmaceutical industries to make sure vaccines are going to low and middle income countries where those countries don't necessarily have the purchasing power and ability to negotiate with pharmaceutical industries to get uh, these vaccines quickly. And so it was a bit of a misstep in my view where Canada, who absolutely had the power to negotiate with pharmaceutical industries and in fact uh, procured a bunch of vaccines, way more than we would ever need, actually drew vaccines from, from COVAX. These are vaccines that are desperately needed uh, in other countries. And so, so that, that's one misstep that we, we might want to think differently about. Um, but also as we're moving into a phase of our vaccine rollout where we're thinking about third doses, um, there's, a, there's a lot of debate about whether we ought to be um, maybe putting off the rollout of third doses until we get more first doses into the arms of, uh, of vulnerable populations in other countries. And, you know, I think and the same sort of question uh, is, is raised with kids, too, and whether we should be vaccinating kids before we're vaccinating healthcare workers and 80-year-olds and, and other parts of the world. And sometimes this is sort of framed as neither or sort of position. But I think what's very clear is that if we're going to be doing this, we need to really demonstrate that we're also making a very clear commitment to global vaccine equity. That if we are going to be rolling out more vaccines domestically in Canada, we need to redouble our efforts to make sure that we're also contributing more money and uh, more resources into COVAX so that we can get vaccines into arms. And I think what we're seeing now is, is despite the fact that it's very important that people get their third doses, particularly with the threat, the potential threat that Omicron faces uh, or that uh, it, it creates, um, you know, I think what, what's really going on here is people are feeling a bit guilty in Canada and other high income countries for getting a third dose, even though it's necessary um, because other people haven't received their first dose. I think we can kind of do both and Canadians and those in high income countries could feel a lot better about getting a third dose if they could see an actual policy commitment um, from the Canadian government that's going above and beyond uh, to meet the, the objectives of COVAX and making sure that we're vaccinating the world at the same time. And as it stands uh, globally, we're, we're not meeting the targets that were set out to vaccinate the entire world. And so that's really where it shows that Canada needs to step up its efforts. Uh, speaking back to the me first vaccine stance that many countries have taken, I remember when the WHO Director General warned earlier this year that the mentality of vaccine nationalism or vaccine hoarding puts the world on the brink of catastrophic moral failure. And I'd really like to get your opinion on vaccine nationalism. Yeah, I mean, this is a really interesting ethical question because I think for most ethicists, they'll understand this sort of cosmopolitan view where um, every human has equal moral worth. And so the fact that you might be a citizen of Canada makes very little difference uh, to, to the moral worth that you have and uh, whether you ought to be vaccinated or not. Um, and so most will, I think, take the view that the suffering of people in, uh, in Nigeria is, is just as important as the suffering of Canadians. And so we ought to work equally to address that suffering, either through vaccinations or, or therapies or other things. But ethically, you know, there is an interesting kind of tweak to that where, you know, we do expect 
our decision makers in, in our countries, the ones in which we, we live, to have a special obligation to its citizens, right? We, I think most Canadians would expect that uh, Prime Minister Justin Trudeau would fight for the interests of Canadians, right? That is something that they're, they're situated to do. And so some make the argument that yes, we do have these global commitments to vaccine equity and, and we do want to reduce the suffering of people everywhere in the world, but we might have special moral obligations to our own citizens. Now, some people take that way too far in my view, and that's where you get the vaccine nationalism view where we, we should absolutely prioritize all Canadians before you think about others. But the more sort of measured view might be to say, look, we can pursue the interests and needs of our population, but not necessarily um, to the uh, disadvantage of those in other parts of the world. And so what that might look like is, yes, trying to fight for early access for vaccination in, in Canada and rolling out vaccines in Canada, but at the same time, trying to ensure that you're, you're investing in COVAX and investing in um, things that would make it easier for other countries to be vaccinated. So just as, a, as an example of this, um, pharmaceutical companies uh, have intellectual property rights for the vaccines that they manufacture. And the fact that there are those intellectual property rights makes it difficult for other countries and other manufacturers to develop vaccines with speed and urgency enough to get people vaccinated in other countries. And one way to sort of uh, address that, to speed up the vaccination efforts in other countries, is to waive those intellectual property rights, to say, look, yes, we developed it. Yes, we have the intellectual property, but let's waive that to make sure that uh, a manufacturer in uh, Botswana can manufacture this vaccine and get those vaccines into arms. Canada, despite the fact that it cares about back global vaccine equity and could roll out vaccines as quick as it uh, possibly can in Canada, um, still supports the intellectual property regime that exists for these vaccines. And so even if we wanted to roll out the vaccines in the way that we have in Canada, simply by saying we support the waiving of intellectual property rights would help on the global scale to get vaccines into arms quicker. And that actually wouldn't even affect the rollout in Canada necessarily. So there's still things that can be done where you can get vaccines into arms in Canada and still uh, put greater support into global vaccine uh, equity efforts. So in your professional opinion, how exactly can vaccine equity be achieved? Is there a step-by-step -step solution or is there a set of principles that policymakers should keep in mind? I think it's, it's, uh, it's complicated because vaccine equity will require different things in different settings. Um, so as I mentioned at, at the top of the podcast, you know, getting vaccines to some countries uh, is, is kind of half the battle. Right. And we've kind of seen over the past several months um, this sort of drip, drip, drip of vaccines into some countries. And then all of a sudden there's a big uh, download of vaccines into a country. And then we wonder why they they haven't all administered them very quickly and why we don't see all sorts of vaccine uh, uptake in the country. It's because they've only recently received a plethora of vaccines that they now have to administer. And so part of that could be saying, look, we need. To, to be very conscious about not that we will give you vaccines uh, or the globally we will allocate those vaccines in a way that's equitable. We need to think about how, how over time we can make sure that they're getting the right amount of vaccine given the, the needs that uh, and capacity that different countries have to actually distribute and administer those vaccines. We need to be thinking about 
do uh, some countries that have poor health infrastructures, do they have the capacity to deliver and administer these vaccines? How can we help in those efforts? Because it's not enough to get vaccines into the country. We actually need vaccinations. And so we need to work with countries to actually help that uh, uh, happen as well. I think waiving intellectual property rights is going to be very important to make sure that we're manufacturing as much vaccine as possible. Uh, if we actually want to meet the needs of, of everyone globally, I think uh, transferring the technologies that are required to manufacture those vaccines is really important um, because, you know, if some countries are completely beholden to high income countries to get vaccines and administer them and they can't do anything in the interim because they don't have sufficient healthcare capacity uh, or manufacturing capacity to help develop those vaccines, that will just simply slow things down even further. So I think that's a lot of uh, what needs to, to go into it here. The other thing that we need to think about is just, um, you know, given the threat that Omicron potentially uh, has, has created for us, there's been a real push in high income countries to get more third doses into arms of, of people in high income countries. And I think, you know, that urgency that is felt by Canadians and by the Canadian government now, I think, to get third doses into arms. We need to match that sense of urgency for global vaccine equity. Why is it that we feel that it's so urgent to get third doses into our most vulnerable, but we don't feel equally as urgent to get first doses into healthcare workers uh, in, in Africa, right? We need to proceed with the same level of urgency. If we don't, I think we'll just continue to exacerbate the inequities that we see. Um, and then if you think about the, the potential for this vaccine, to be uh, maybe something that we would need annually, like we do with the flu shot, you can see how quickly this could get out of hand, the disparity between uh, high income countries and low income countries. So what strategies should be in place to distribute vaccines in low and middle income countries? We read your paper on debunking the vaccine prioritization scheme of just using age. And we are wondering if you could briefly explain how vaccine prioritization works and what vaccine prioritization scheme do you think would be most beneficial to low and middle income countries? Yeah, so this has a lot to do with the particular context that the country finds itself in. Um, so if you were a country of 10 million people and you could all of a sudden get 10 million vaccines, uh, sure, it might take some time to actually roll those out to, to all, the, all the people that would want it, but um, effectively you could open the floodgates and say, come one, come all. We don't need to set any priorities. It's, it's enough for everyone. Might just take a few weeks to, to get to everyone, but everyone would be eligible. Um, that's quite different than a context like we faced in the early rollout of the vaccine in Canada, where, you know, it took, uh, I think it was a month until we had 100,000 vaccines, right? And we're um, in, in Ontario, I'm speaking about. In Ontario, we have 15 million people. So in that month, we had to think about out of 15 million people, who should get 100,000 vaccines? Some people said it's very easy. You know, you give it to healthcare workers, you give it to uh, residents of long-term care homes, and yet there is something like half a million healthcare workers in this province. There's hundreds of thousands of people that are living in long-term care homes or retirement homes. And so even within those groups, we need to be a little bit more exacting about who should get priority. So I think to, to set priorities, no matter the circumstance you're in, you need to think about what are the vaccines capable of doing? And then what is the ultimate objective that we want to achieve with a vaccine rollout? So what, how do we want to use the harm reducing powers of the vaccines? Do, do we want to say save the most lives as we possibly can? Is averting death the most important objective? 
Is it trying to avert the most number of hospitalizations given a potential threat that our hospital, hospitals might be overwhelmed? Um, some might say it's keeping schools open, right? Or it could be about protecting the economy. So let's get vaccines into places that will make sure that businesses can still function and we still have a, a thriving economy. Depending on what you value or see as being as most, most of worth, you kind of have a different objective and that tells you different things about which populations should be prioritized. In my view, and I think this aligns with what we've written about in the past and, and how Ontario um, and Canada rolled out its vaccines, and in fact, most countries have rolled out their vaccines, it, we've prioritized uh, averting death as, as really the most important uh, value here in, in the rollout of vaccines. That's not to say it's the only thing we value. We also care about protecting the health system. We don't want people to be hospitalized. Um, but we know that the vaccines are very effective at preventing death and at preventing hospitalization and severe disease. Um, and so let's target the vaccines toward those populations who are at greatest risk of death and risk of hospitalization and risk of severe disease. And that's a bit of an empirical question, right? We would look to what populations are at greatest risk. Clearly those that are over the age of 60 are at the greatest risk of these severe outcomes. Those that are living uh, or working in congregate settings like long-term care homes are at that greater risk. Some uh, underlying health conditions, irrespective of age, are at increased risk. This was the argument that I, I made about not just using age as a, a criterion for priority setting. You know, it is true that an 80-year-old or let's say a 70-year-old is at a much higher risk of death from COVID, um, but so is the 30-year-old who has received an organ transplant. And if you say, well, it's kind of easy enough just to start with 80-year-olds and work your way down, it may be several months until you get to that 30-year-old, despite the fact that they're at the exact same risk as a 70-year-old from dying if they get COVID. And so we just need to really pinpoint the populations that are at greatest risk of those severe outcomes and then find practical ways to, to uh, prioritize those groups and, and sort of work until we get to the lowest priority groups. The other thing that I'll say is we're really good at coming up and thinking about that domestically. And we did that in Canada. We did that in Ontario. But we don't do that globally, right? If we cared about getting vaccines to the groups that are at greatest risk, uh, we would have been trying to prioritize older adults and healthcare workers in Africa long before we're actually doing it now. Um, so it's one of those things that we need to really apply the thinking that we think is justifiable domestically and, and apply that to the global scale as well. So also on the topic of fairness, could you speak to the fairness of global vaccine recognition? Like for a long time, international vaccines like Sinovac, Sinopharm, and Sputnik were not ranked as equally as Pfizer and Moderna to the extent that these vaccines weren't accepted for travel and entry into some Western countries. Do you think that there is an issue of ethics with respect to vaccine recognition? Is it fair for countries to write off certain vaccines, especially given that there are still issues in vaccine distribution? Yeah, I think it's a bit of, there's a bit of it that's an ethical issue, and that comes down to the, the fairness, ultimately, of, of how these policies affect people. But I think a lot of this comes down to kind of the practical limitations that policymakers face. Um, so think about it this way. Health Canada is the, uh, is the health drug regulator for Canada. And so they receive submissions from vaccine manufacturers to say, will you authorize this vaccine for your country? And then they do their due diligence where they evaluate all the risks and benefit of the vaccine. They, they spend weeks doing this and they ultimately say, yes, that vaccine is good enough to give to our population. And Health Canada has done that for Pfizer, for Moderna, for AstraZeneca and for Johnson & Johnson. 
And so they've authorized all of those vaccines for use in Canada. And so when they're thinking about what kind of vaccines should we count as eligible for people traveling into our country, they can quite clearly say, well, we've done our due diligence and examined all of those vaccines. And so let's put those on the list. If someone says, I received Sinovac, um, is that good enough to get into your country? Health Canada has never received a submission from that particular manufacturer. And so it's hard for Health Canada to say, well, we know that that one uh, operates or is as effective as these other vaccines. So sure, it should, should also be included. And they won't get a submission from those companies, from any of the other vaccine companies, because we've, we have enough of the other vaccines, right? There's no interest of those companies even to make a submission to Health Canada for them to consider that. And so that's kind of the practical issue that, you know, we can kind of only make our, our policy decisions based on the information we have and the expertise we have based on the evaluations of the different products that have crossed our desks in these instances. But one of the ways to kind of uh, solve for that is that the World Health Organization has something called an emergency use list. And what they do is they kind of, uh, they, they do the same analysis that Health Canada would do when they receive a submission, but they do it at a global level. They don't receive submissions of every vaccine, but they've received a lot of them. Uh, and they do the sort of analysis that uh, other countries can, can kind of look at and say, well, that has gone through the rigorous process of analysis. And so we're going to use that to inform our policy decisions or our own analysis of those vaccines uh, locally. And so that's tend to be, tended to be how some countries have approached this. Uh, instead of excluding all vaccines that your health regulator hasn't looked at, they look to the World Health Organization list and say, look, if the vaccine's on that list, we'll accept any traveler that has any one of those vaccines because we trust the World Health Organization's um, analysis of those vaccines. So I think that's a partial uh, uh, response to the, the unfairness that we're experiencing with that. But of course, not every vaccine has been on that emergency use list at the World Health Organization either. So there's still going to be vac vaccinated people that will be excluded from these travel policies. I think that's unfortunate, and I, I, but I do think that that's something that, that will be rectified over time once globally we have a better understanding of the different vaccines that exist for COVID and we have sort of a collective understanding of which ones are deemed to be effective uh, such that they would be included in those travel policies. How can we combat vaccine mistrust and misinformation both in places that have reliable access to vaccines and in places that do not? Yeah, I mean, that's a, a multifaceted, difficult question. It, it, the trust question is really one of the, the main questions of this pandemic, um, because if you can even develop, uh, as we have, very, very safe and effective vaccines, um, they're no good to us unless they go into an arm, right? And if there's mistrust or distrust, then that might mean that it doesn't go into an arm. Um, and so we really do need to tackle the trust question fundamentally. What I've learned uh, is that, so I was on Ontario's Vaccine Distribution Task Force, and you know I, I did media talking about uh, the vaccines and the distribution of the vaccines, as did our elected officials, uh, our Minister Elliott, the Minister of Health, uh, Premier Doug Ford, the Premier of our province. And what, what became very apparent to me is that it's important for um, people in those positions to speak out uh, and you know to get the vaccine live on air as we saw lots of pol politicians do to, to demonstrate that they, they think it's safe and they're willing to get the vaccine. Um, but for a lot of people, they don't care if you know an elected official gets a vaccine or if they say it's good. Like what does that matter to the actual person on the ground? Um, and so I think what we've really learned, and I think this is a lesson in public health that, that we've been learning for some time, 
is that to actually affect trust and to, um, to, to, to make sure that the kind of messaging is taken up at a local level, you need to leverage local trustworthy relationships. And so, you know, it might not be Premier Doug Ford on the TV who, who uh, you listen to, but it could be your primary care practitioner. It could be your faith leader in your community. It could be a community leader in your community. Um, and because you already have trusting relationships with those people, you trust what they say. If they engage in a conversation with you about the, the value of being vaccinated or the value of doing anything that's health protecting or promoting, you tend to trust that more, right? Because you have a pre-existing trusting relationship with those people. And so, you know, you can sort of sing all day long you want on TV as, a, as an elected official or someone with some celebrity or whatever it might be, and, and people just won't change their minds. We really need a ground game, right? We need this to be something that's organic, that we really leverage the trusting relationship relationships that already exist in our society. And that is, you know, it's not a silver bullet. It's not an easy thing to do. You need everyone involved in playing a role to do this. So it's tough. It's a, it's a, um, it's a rough sort of slog to get through to get everyone um, playing their role here. But I think that's the only way you can really affect the kind of trust, trusting relationships that you need for people to think, uh, you know, whether this is a good idea for them or not. And so I think that's really where the crux of a lot of this decision-making exists is at that community local level. So will equal access to vaccines and the pandemic once and for all? No, um, I think just, I mean, vaccines are going to be one of the most important tools that we have in our toolbox to, to end the pandemic. So um, in philosophy, we like to think of uh, conditions as, as being necessary or sufficient. Um, so I think vaccines will be necessary. We're not going to end the pandemic without them, but whether they're sufficient to end the pandemic is another story. Um, and whether equal access to, to vaccination uh, would be sufficient as well. So I think we do need um, access by everyone in the world to be vaccinated. But clearly, you know, vaccines aren't, they don't guarantee that you won't get COVID. Um, they, there's good evidence to suggest they reduce your risk. Right, and they could be 90% effective at reducing risk. They could even be 40% effective at reducing risk. But what they do is they reduce that risk, and that's good. And the more people that get vaccinated, it means the more uh, that risk is reduced. But it doesn't completely eliminate the risk. And so if you want the pandemic to end sooner and you don't want new variants to crop up if we leave this going on too long, as we've seen with both the Delta variant and the Omicron variant, um, you need to take extra measures to make sure that we're curbing transmission of this virus as much as possible. And that means mask wearing indoors. It means good ventilation because uh, the, the virus that causes COVID, SARS-CoV-2, is an airborne virus, right? So that means that if you're only six feet away from someone and you're not wearing masks and you're spending time in that room, uh, think of it like blowing smoke out into the air. That's going to uh, then navigate the entire room and, and you will inhale that and potentially get uh, infected as a result. So I think if you add these layers of protection on, um, that doesn't mean we need to be doing this for the rest of our lives. But during an acute phase where the where the virus is circulating such as it is, you put all of these different layers into place, you drastically redu reduce the transmission of the virus, and then, uh, you know, then you get to a stage where we can actually live our lives without those measures. The, the really silly thing that I've seen happen over and over is that we want to balance, you know, our living our normal lives and, and having the, the freedoms that we are, are used to um, with these measures that are put in place to curb the transmission of the virus. 
and we keep getting rid of the measures a little bit too early, right? So you can look at countries like Austria and, and Portugal where they've removed, or in the United States where they've re removed mask mandates. So they have good, uh, relatively good vaccination coverage, which gives us good reduction in that risk, but then you stop wearing masks. And then all of a sudden you see cases creep up again, you see hospitalizations creep up again, and then you have to take even more severe measures after that because you've, you've eliminated masks. And so now you see total lockdowns of countries as a result, or even vaccination mandates for every citizen of the country um, because we've removed these other way less aggressive measures uh, in the first place. So I think if we just, we, we, we do need to rely on our vaccines to a big extent, but if we take a, still a measured approach to say, well, let's just continue to wear masks indoors where it's, uh, where it's reasonable to do so, um, ventilate our spaces and avoid big, big crowds where we can spread the virus more easily. I think if you sort of stick to those principles, then uh, you will see a drastic reduction in, in transmission of the virus and we will get out of this and back to normal much sooner. So how can we keep up this public will to follow measures such as mask wearing, getting our vaccines, social distancing, when I feel like there's been a lot of pandemic fatigue and people are tired and people don't want to do this anymore? How can we keep up public morale to encourage such measures being taken? Yeah, I think you're, you're pointing to a, this is part of the biggest issue we're facing right now. Um, part of it is we have no choice, and uh, it's unfortunate, but those who have said, I'm done with the pandemic, or you know, they're just sick of, of having to follow these rules, that will just ultimately catch up to you, right? Because at the current state, maybe you could say, look, I'm just willing to go out and do whatever I want, and, and uh, other people might still follow those rules, but that might mean it will get so bad that even the most uh, staunch uh, uh, opposite, uh, opposers to these rules at some point we'll say it's getting to be too extreme, right? Where my surgeries or procedural care for other things unrelated to COVID are being canceled, our hospitals are being overwhelmed, all our kids in schools are getting COVID. At some point they're going to say, well, we need to rethink those measures. Um, so, you know, I, I do get the pandemic fatigue thing. And uh, my only way to think optimistically about it is to, is to really think that if we really followed the public health directives that have existed, and, and if we really collectively did that um, with some seriousness, right, without uh, a lot of our population disregarding them or thinking it doesn't apply to them, uh, we will find the end of this pandemic sooner rather than later. The, the more time that we spend kind of with our foot halfway into this and, and okay, yes, I'll, I'll physically distance here and there, or I'll wear a mask here and there, or, you know, I'll get vaccinated when, when I get around to it. It's just going to be, that's going to be the, the thing that prolongs the pandemic. If we really just commit ourselves to nipping this in the bud, and if we collectively do that, um, it, it'll, it'll end sooner. And I think, you know, there's, there's reasons to be optimistic because despite the fact that we have a new variant emerging, given the vaccine inequities that we're experiencing globally, you know, we're, we're starting to vaccinate children. Right, we're seeing the effect that third doses can have at neutralizing um, uh, even um, emerging evidence around the Omicron variant. So, um, you know, we're getting the world vaccinated. It's been slow and inequitable, but we're making progress towards it. We're now vaccinating even younger kids who are in school, which is where a lot of our cases currently are. And so, I think, and, and if you look at jurisdictions that have got rid of masks and those that have kept them in place indoors, like Ontario, you see drastic differences between those jurisdictions. So I think we know what the tools are. This is the optimistic thing. We know what the tools are to limit transmission and end the pandemic. We just need to make the choice to actually follow through with them. 
Um, so it's less about not having the solution. That would be the really pessimistic place to be. We know what the solutions are. We just need to actually make the choice and follow through with them. Thank you for listening to our podcast today. It was a pleasure having this conversation with Dr. Smith. We all know that COVID has been exhausting. It's been a long, hard two years, and it's only human of us to become tired of this thing that's changed many of our lives. It's hard to hear about COVID constantly, but we have to hold on and continue to have these important, hard discussions so we can come out of this better. Thank you again, and goodbye for now.